Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. And if you're using a pew Bible, uh, you can find it on page 630. Again, we'll be reading Acts chapter 5, verses 12 through 42. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation. And laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go, stand in the temple and speak to all the people all the words of this life. When they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than man. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or of this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. God, we just thank you this morning that you've empowered us with your word and your Holy Spirit uh, to preach the name of Jesus as the Christ. God, may we be bold. 
Lord, may we represent a church that is powered by you and that is unstoppable. Lord, just send us forth, change our hearts this morning, and mold us and make us ready. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Kirk, for leading us in our scripture reading through a great, great passage of scripture here in Acts chapter 5. Unstoppable. I love that word. Unstoppable. In fact, what comes to your mind when you hear the word, or even see it on these, uh, the posters around the church and in your notes on the power screen here, what comes to your mind when you hear or see the word unstoppable? It's a great word. Now, as most of you know, I'm a, I'm a huge sports fan. Uh, love sports, love to play sports, love to watch sports, especially basketball. And so what comes to my mind when I first hear the word unstoppable is sports teams that were seemingly unstoppable. For example, just here recently, the Kentucky Wildcats were unstoppable all season long until they got beat by the Wisconsin Badgers. How many rooted for that game? Yes. And you know they got beat in the national semifinals of the NCAA tournament. They were 38-0 before they got beat. Unstoppable. And then they lost. Two years ago. Marvell, this is for you. The Wichita State Shockers were unstoppable when the basketball season, when they started the basketball season at 34-0. But then they got beat by the Kentucky Wildcats in the NCAA tournament. 2007, the New England Patriots. Any Patriot fans here? We have one. <laughs> That's good because we are Chiefs fans. In 2007, the New England Patriots were billed as the greatest NFL team in history when they entered the Super Bowl undefeated at 19-0. They were unstoppable all season long until the New York Giants pulled off one of the biggest upsets of all time. It was awesome. Over the years, there have been several college football teams that were also unstoppable. The Florida State Seminoles, Kim, that was for you, were the last undefeated team to win the national championship at 14-0 in 2013. Now, as we think of this word unstoppable, I want us to consider the church as unstoppable. And if that seems a little far-fetched to you, if that just seems a little unbelievable to you, then stay with me. Hang with me this morning, because that's what we're going to see right here in Acts chapter 5. The church is unstoppable. Luke is showing us that. He's showing us that God's church is unstoppable, but not without opposition trying to stop the church. And so what we need to do, we need to get ready for a second wave of opposition coming on God's church. What we see here on the power screen, on our notes here, is that powerful opposition tries again to silence the proclamation of Jesus Christ, but God's church will not be stopped. I love it! The first wave of opposition... You may recall, came upon the church in Acts chapter 4 when the Jewish authorities, the Jewish uh, religious leaders, put Peter and John in prison for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And upon their release the next day, Peter and John were threatened by them and they were warned, do not 
speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John's response was resolute. It was firm. And they said, we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. And now we come in chapter 5 to a second wave of opposition which comes upon the church when the apostles again are put in prison for doing what? For proclaiming Jesus Christ. And I just love what the Jewish authorities said to the apostles when they interrogated them here in chapter 5, verse 28. Look at it with me. This is phenomenal what they say about the apostles. It says, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in His name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine or your teaching. Now, the Jewish authorities didn't realize it, but that was perhaps the greatest compliment they could have given to the apostles. That was a wonderful compliment to give them. Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. You say, what teaching? Oh, folks, listen, it was teaching about Jesus Christ as the one who died on the cross and rose from the grave. It was teaching about the one whom God now exalted to His right hand as Prince and Savior and Leader. The one who gives repentance. The one who forgives, gives forgiveness of sins to those who believe. That's what they were filling Jerusalem with. It's full of the glory of Jesus Christ. What a compliment they paid to these apostles because of what they were accomplishing. Man, can you imagine? Just imagine with me for a moment. Can you imagine that being said about our church? Look, people on the outside, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, people here in Crestview, they are saying to you, to us, about our church, look, you are filling Kansas City with your teaching about Jesus. You're filling the city with the gospel of Jesus Christ. What a compliment to be paid. Or you have filled your neighborhood. You have filled your workplace. You have filled your school with Jesus Christ. That's what was being said about this early church here in Acts chapter 5. Look, you have filled Jerusalem with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you realize what this means? This is, this is astounding. It means the mission that we saw in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the mission that Jesus gave to his disciples, the mission that Jesus continues to give to us here today. It means the mission is being fulfilled at this very moment here. And Jerusalem is simply one step in that mission. It's one stop in that mission. Jesus said in Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now, these Jewish religious leaders are proclaiming, they're declaring to these apostles, and now Jerusalem is filled with the witness of Jesus Christ and it's almost time to move on to Judea and Samaria. We'll see that in part two of our series here in the book of Acts, because it really takes off in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9 with the conversion of Paul. Oh, how I hope. This is really my prayer. I hope and I pray that you're beginning to see that God's church is unstoppable. 
but perhaps you're also wondering, well, how is this possible? Well, notice in your notes here, God's church is unstoppable because God answers prayer. God, first and foremost, He answers prayer, and God is, works powerfully to grow His church through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. After the first wave of opposition, the church comes together for prayer. And they cry out to God. And notice what they pray for here in Acts chapter 4, verses 29 through 30. They cry out to God, Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness that they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And now, here in Acts 5, we see God answering that prayer of the apostles of the church of Jesus Christ here in Acts. Look what it says in Acts 5, verse 12. God is answering this prayer. And it says, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Listen, what we see happening here is God answers prayer, and He works powerfully to grow His church through the proclamation of the Gospel. God's church is not hindered by opposition. It's not hindered by opposition from without or with, from within. God is mighty. And God works powerfully to grow His church. Don't forget, this growth event, as we saw last Sunday, it comes right on the heels of Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead in the church for their sin. Remember their sin? Their sin of pretending to be more spiritual than they were. Their sin of hypocrisy. And God takes it seriously, and they drop dead in the middle of the church. And now we see this happening the church growing on the heels of that. Now, it would be easy to think right here that an episode like that, like Ananias and Sapphira dropping dead in church, can you imagine that happening here? It would be easy to think that that would just kill the church. No pun intended. Surely no one would want to participate in a church where people are literally dying for lying. Would you want to join a church that's, where that's taking place? And yet, that's what we see happening here. And so the stunning reality is, after the fear of God came upon all those on the inside of the church, as well as those who heard about that on the outside of the church, we actually see the church doing what? We see the church expanding. We see the church growing with multitudes, Luke says, of both men and women. Amazing! But that's our God. People saw the power of God at work. They heard the gospel of Jesus Christ being proclaimed, and they believed in their hearts in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, and they were increasingly added to the Lord and His church. Here's the point. God's church is what? Oh my, I just did a terrible introduction. God's church is what? Unstoppable. God's church is unstoppable. Listen, God will grow His church through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The question is, it's a question for me, it's a question for you. It's a question for all of us. Will you, will I, 
Will we, will we be unstoppable in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? Like this church, like these Christ followers. Or, or will you stand back and watch from the sidelines like those who, quote, dared not join the church in verse 13 here? Did you notice that little comment by Luke as he writes this, as he describes it? Yet none of the rest dared join them. They were fearful to join the church after what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. But, oh, they respected the people. But they were stepping back, they were holding back, and they were watching and waiting. But others, Luke says, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord. And so you see two groups here. And the question is, which one will we be in? Will we be unstoppable in proclaiming Jesus Christ, or will we cower in fear? Will we be silenced? Now what I want us to see this morning, as we go through chapter 5 here, is that the church is unstoppable, and I want to show you that there are three things, that was four, three, three things that cannot stop the church from proclaiming Jesus Christ. I want you to see this. First of all, notice number one, prison can't stop the church from proclaiming the gospel. Prison can't stop it. As you might imagine, the Jewish authorities were not pleased with all this talk about Jesus. They were not pleased with all these healings in the name of Jesus, and they were certainly not pleased with all these people believing in Jesus. In fact, they were filled, Luke says, with indignation. In other words, they were filled with jealousy. Look what it says in 17 and 18 here. Then the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and so just think of the Jewish religious leaders, the Jewish authorities of that day and that culture. And they were filled with indignation, and they laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So here we go again. Except this time, the Jewish authorities threw all the apostles in prison, not just Peter and John like the first time. It's all of them. Did the apostles do anything wrong? Absolutely not. They did everything right, and they still, get this, got thrown in prison. I don't think that the apostles were too surprised by this opposition against them. After all, they knew by this point that if Jesus got persecuted, they would too. Now, it is interesting to note that the high priests and the Sadducees, these people were supposed to be the religious leaders of the day. Listen, they were not motivated by justice here. Rather, they were motivated by jealousy, indignation, Luke says. They were jealous of their control and traditions and beliefs, and so they thought they could silence the apostles by throwing them in prison. But they soon realized that the doors of a prison can't stop God's church from proclaiming the gospel. And so what we see next here is phenomenal. It's, it's beautiful. We see a divine prison break orchestrated by God himself. Look at this in your notes. The Jewish authorities put the apostles in prison, but God released them to continue proclaiming the gospel. Now, 
Let me just give you the background here because God has a great sense of humor. Did you realize that God does have a sense of humor? God's not all stoic up in heaven watching over us. He's got a sense of humor. After all, we're made in his image, and we like humor, right? How many like to laugh? Sure, we all do. And God's got a sense of humor here. Because, listen, the Sadducees right here, listen, this group of people, they didn't believe, get this, they didn't believe in angels. And yet, look who God uses to free his apostles. This is ironic. It's great. Look at it in verses 19 through 20. It says, but at night an angel of the Lord, which the Sadducees don't believe in, but I'm sure they do after this. At night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go, stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And according to verse 21, what do the apostles do? They entered the temple early in the morning and they started to to proclaim Jesus Christ. They couldn't be stopped. And I love, oh, I love what the gospel here, what it's called, the wording that Luke uses. He calls the gospel, it's called life, this life. Listen, the gospel, it's not just an Easter or Christmas thing or even a Sunday thing. It's not a phase that I'm going through. It's not just some surface level makeover. It's all of life. The good news that we proclaim is that Jesus Christ came into this world to give us abundant life and eternal life. And the angel tells him, go into the temple and proclaim this life that you find in none other than Jesus Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what we see here is that even prison can't stop the church from proclaiming the gospel. God holds the keys. God holds the keys to every prison, so no prison can stop God's church or silence his people from proclaiming Jesus. Now, question, is Luke trying to show us that God always, always frees his people from prison or opposition? Well, I think the answer to that, when we go through and read the rest of the book of Luke, is clear, I mean, the rest of the book of Acts, is clearly no. Because at the end of Acts, we see that a guy by the name of Paul, who was, we're going to learn here later on, his former name was Saul, a murderer of Christians, that Paul remains in prison. God did not free him. Luke is showing us here that God is completely sovereign over people in any opposition that his people may face. And folks, let me tell you, this should give us confidence in our God. This should give us confidence in two ways. First of all, confidence that God can actually free his people from any circumstance if God so chooses. Whoa! He just freed these apostles from prison. And two, it should give us great confidence that when God doesn't choose to free us, it isn't because our God is limited in any way. It's because he knows what's best to accomplish his plans through his people. Well, if prison can't stop the church from proclaiming the gospel, then Satan will try to use people to silence the church. But what we see next here in point number two is that even people can't stop the church from proclaiming the gospel. Now, again, I, I love the humor here, even by Dr. Luke. 
Luke gives us some comic relief at this point when he paints the picture of the whole council of the Jewish authorities organizing this big meeting to interrogate these 12 apostles, but then they realize, oops, we got one big problem. You're like, what's that problem? Well, hang with me. Look at it, verse 21. It says, but the high priest and those with him came, and they called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. Who? The apostles. Now these, what you have to understand, this council of Jewish authorities, these are some of the most important people in the country at that time in the land of Judea. But Luke is showing us here that God's plans aren't hindered by powerful people in authority. God is the one with true power. God is the one with all authority over all things. What did Jesus say at the end of the Great Commission in Matthew 28? All authority is mine and I give it to you. I am with you, lo, to the end of the ages. And so authority and power resides with our God. What happens next is pretty comical as the high priest ends up looking foolish before this elite council. The high priest calls for the officers to bring in the apostles. And when the officers come back, they come back with some good news and some bad news. The good news is they basically say, hey, we found the prison and it was securely locked with the guards standing outside the doors. What's the bad news? No one's inside. <laughs> the apostles are gone. But then one of the officers says, look, there they are. They're in the temple. And look, they're teaching about Jesus again. Seriously, you can't make this stuff up, can you? Notice what it says here in verses 22 and 24. It says, but when the officers came and did not find them in the prison... They returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. you got to love it. Then when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. In other words, they are perplexed. Oh no, what's going to happen now? Then one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Now, can you imagine what these Jewish authorities must have been wondering to themselves? First it was the empty tomb, and now it's the empty cell. What in the world is going on here? Here they were. They're trying to stop the miracles. But their actions only multiplied the very miracles they're trying to stop. Luke tells us in verse 26 that the Jewish leaders sent for the apostles again, but they were careful not to use any force with them and incite a riot for fear that the people might stone them instead of the apostles. Once in custody again, the apostles were brought before the council for an interrogation. And this is where I want us to go a little more in detail. Notice this, the authorities' interrogation of the apostles. Here's their accusation against them. If you're taking notes, you'll fill in the blank here. The accusation basically comes down to this. They're telling the apostles, you are disobeying us. And on top of that, you're making us look bad. This is basically what the apostles are being charged with when the high priest says in verse 28, did we not strictly command you not to teach in his name? 
And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Whose man's blood? Who are they referring to? Jesus. They wouldn't even say his name. That's how much they had hated him. In other words, the Jewish authorities, they didn't like the fact that the apostles defied their authority. They didn't like the fact that the apostles denied their doctrine, denied their traditions. And most of all, these Jewish authority guys, they didn't like the assertion that they were guilty of killing Jesus and needed the salvation that Jesus offered to them. Even though it was true. The apostles' answers, look at their answer. They come back and they tell these guys, we are obeying God in proclaiming Jesus. Speaking for all the apostles, Peter's response is brief but resolute in verse 29. When he says, we ought, some translations say, we must obey God rather than men. And then Peter speaks about Jesus. And I love this again about Peter. He speaks about Jesus here in the next three verses, highlighting his resurrection, his exaltation, as well as his authority to give repentance and forgiveness of sins to anyone who will believe. Now, if you're thinking to yourself, man, you know what? This, this, this sounds a lot like something I've heard before Peter say. This sounds a lot like the same message as before. And if you're thinking that, you're exactly right. It's the same message Peter preached on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. It's the same message Peter preached after the healing of the cripple in Acts chapter 3. And it's the same message Peter preached again to the Jewish authorities here in Acts chapter 4. And now this is the fourth time that Peter's given the opportunity to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and he's preaching the same sermon as before. It's the same message, and it's all about who? Jesus. Why? Because only Jesus makes a difference in somebody's life. Only Jesus can give repentance and forgiveness of sins. Only Jesus can offer eternal life when we put our faith and trust in Him. It's always about Jesus with Peter and Paul. Now, before we move on, we probably ought to stop here for a brief moment, answer a question that maybe perhaps some of you are wondering right now. And that question is this. Are there limits to civil obedience? After all, Peter declares to the authorities at that time, the Jewish authorities, who were put in place or allowed to be in place by the Roman authorities. Peter declares to these authorities... We must obey God rather than men. I believe this episode establishes the principle that there are, in fact, limits to civil obedience. At the same time, we also need to acknowledge and recognize that governments are authorized by God. In fact, according to Romans chapter 13, we should recognize their authority over us. We should respect their authority, their positions of authority, and we should respond to their authority with obedience. But there are limits. And so here's the principle, if I can summarize it this way. When any authority forbids you to do what God commands, or commands you to do what God forbids, then we must obey God. 
At the same time, at the same time, we must be very careful here in our actions and in our motives. What was at stake for the apostles was the freedom to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostles' rebellion, listen to me, was not motivated by personal safety or material self-interest. They were not acting out of concern for their own private benefit. Nor did they engage in verbal abuse or violent physical acts to promote their aims, their tone, their demeanor, while strong and resolute, shows as much concern for their oppressors as it does for the oppressed. Listen, they were not in the business of rock throwing or violent demonstrations. They saw themselves as people of the cross prepared to suffer for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, this leads us to a next question. How do you think then the Jewish authorities responded when they heard Peter's answer to them? We must obey God, not you. Think that made them happy? Oh no. Look what it says in verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious. How many of you have ever been furious before? Well, if you have kids, raise your hand. Furious. Ticked off. They were furious and they took counsel to kill these apostles. Why did they want to kill the apostles? What had these guys done? Were they guilty of acts of violence? Were they enemies of the state of Rome? Of course, asking these questions is pointless since there is something utterly irrational about the opposition of the Jewish authorities here. After all, their reaction to the apostles was precisely the same as the Jewish response just a few months earlier, perhaps a year earlier, to Jesus Christ when they cried out, Crucify Him. Crucify Him. And before He was crucified, Jesus warned these very same disciples that these days would come. In John 15, 20, when Jesus says, If they persecuted Me, they will also persecute you. You know, it's interesting. The very mention of Jesus' name. The very mention that their salvation in no other name seems to bring about a venomous response and a violent reaction on the part of the Jewish authorities. Folks, what we see here is gospel hatred then and now. Notice this. We should not be surprised by the fierce resistance. We should not be surprised by the violent reaction toward the proclamation of Jesus Christ then nor now. Listen, the situation in our own time is only somewhat different. In our culture today, talking about Jesus is tolerated so long as it is seen as something that's personal. It's a private view. In other words... Listen, you may believe whatever you want to believe so long as no claim is made upon the belief systems of other people. 
One pastor and author summarizes it this way in his commentary on Acts. Let me read his words to you. He says, Christianity may exist within the marketplace of ideas as one among many, but its claims to exclusivity will be met with fierce resistance and ridicule. It will be treated with sarcasm and derision. At times, more sympathy will be afforded to molesters and murderers than to Christians who believe the Bible to be the inerrant word of God. That is true. That is the day and age in which we live right now. So don't be surprised when some people respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ with fierce resistance or even ridicule. And yet, Luke is showing us here that no prison and no people can stop God's church from proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's also a third point here I want us to see. Persecution can't stop it either. Persecution can't stop the church from proclaiming the gospel. With their fury raging, the Jewish authorities were ready to kill the apostles right there on the spot. But God, in His grace, in His mercy, in His wisdom, in His sovereign plan of redemption, God, get this, He uses a Pharisee of all people, by the name of Gamaliel, to save the apostles' lives. By the way, let me just point out too, that even if the apostles had been killed, it would have not stopped the church. Because eventually, do you realize what happened to most of these apostles? They were all martyred anyways, along with some other early church leaders. And yet, God's church is still alive, is it not? God's church is still growing to this very day. We are part of that movement. We are part of God's church. This church, this local church right here, is evidence of that. Gamel was a highly respected Pharisee who talked the Jewish authorities into not killing the apostles just yet, citing two attempted revolts of the past that basically came to nothing. He essentially says, his reasoning is this, hey, let's not get too concerned about all this. We've seen things like this before, and most likely this too will just kind of fizzle out if we give it time. Gamel argued that the best policy was a, a wait-and-see approach to this Jesus movement by the apostles. And he states, look what he says in verses 38 and 39. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if, it, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Now in the end, the Jewish leaders here were persuaded by this reasoning. But they weren't about to release these apostles without first making them suffer a little bit. Notice what happens in verse 40. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. Now this beating, we see that word and we think it was maybe a slap on the wrist, punch in the face. Oh, folks, it was much more than that. This word for beating 
it likely refers to flogging. Some of you may be familiar with that word in relation to Jesus Christ when he was beaten and flogged. Roman law stipulated that they could only administer 40 lashes minus one because 40 lashes could kill a person. And even then, when you got 39, people often died. So the minus one was to make sure they didn't kill you, but to make you wish you were dead. Such flogging would rip the skin open. It would tear the flesh and cause not only severe pain, but severe loss of blood. In other words, this beating at the hands of the Jewish authorities on the apostles, the goal was to make them suffer so much that they would be silenced. Which brings us to a very heart-penetrating question for us here this morning. Will you be silenced through persecution? How much would it take to silence you? What discomforts would you be willing to suffer for the name of Jesus? Are you willing? Here's a question. Are you willing? Am I? Are we, are we willing to forgo social advancements and job security for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we ready to suffer for Jesus? Are we willing to die for our Savior? Evidently, these apostles were ready and willing to suffer and die for the sake of the gospel. Look what it says in verses 41 and 42. So they departed from the presence of the council, and this, this next word just blows me away. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple... That blows me away. And in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Whoa! Their response is utterly shocking, amazing, and to be emulated by us today. Notice this. The apostles rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. You say, what? How can rejoicing and suffering be in the same sentence? Because they knew that if they died, as we learned this morning in the New Life class, the best is yet to come. Because God just ushers us into glory. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And so that's why they could rejoice even in the midst of suffering. One Bible scholar says, we have a new dimension of the theology of suffering here. To suffer for Christ is an honor that causes joy. You say, does this stuff happen today? Oh, you bet it still happens today. Did you know that according to the International Journal of Missionary Research, that, get this, more Christians were martyred in the 20th century than all previous centuries combined, and that the 21st century is on pace to beat the last century. It's estimated that currently over 100 million Christians are being persecuted worldwide. Last year, ISIS declared Christians its number one enemy. One website reported that ISIS ex executed hundreds, 
perhaps thousands of Christians throughout Iraq and forced many to flee the country. A joint conference between the International Christian Embassy and the World Jewish Congress was held last September to discuss the dire situation for Christians. Quote now, Across the Middle East, in the last 10 years, 100,000 Christians have been murdered each year. That means every five minutes a Christian is killed because of his faith. Those who can escape persecution at the hands of Muslim extremists have fled. Those who remain exist as second, if not third-class citizens to their Muslim rulers. As Islam jihadists have gained ground throughout the Middle East over the last three years, the Christian community has faced persecution in a number of countries, including Egypt, Iraq, Libya, Syria. Iran has persecuted Christians relentlessly as well. Is this real today in our world? Absolutely. Is it coming here? Are we ready? Are we prepared? What these persecutors don't realize is that the church of Jesus Christ, though, is what? It's unstoppable. It was the church father, Tertullian, who said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to dust. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. The church of Jesus Christ is what? Unstoppable. The apostles rejoiced. Number two, they could not be silenced. They could not be silenced from proclaiming the gospel of Jesus. These apostles were not going to be silenced despite being warned not to speak about Jesus. By threats of imprisonment, beatings, and even death could not silence them. They had been radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, they said, we must proclaim what Jesus has done for us to you. No prison. No people, no persecution can stop God's church and silence God's people from proclaiming Jesus. Oh, oh, that we would be like these disciples, like these Christ followers here in the early church. That we would have a conviction within our gut, within our heart, that nothing is more important than knowing the forgiveness of sin that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. That the good news of the gospel would grip us in such a way that we must, we must proclaim Jesus as these early believers did. I want to close with this simple prayer. It's a prayer that I hope you will join me in during our response time. It's a prayer that I hope you will pray with me during this week, during the following week, and in the coming months. I pray, I hope you will join me in making this your personal prayer in the days and weeks ahead. Make it your family prayer. Make it our church prayer. It is this. It is a prayer to be a church on mission. And the prayer is simply this. Oh Lord, grant us the grace to persevere. Persevere in doing what? In proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ even in the midst of opposition. Are you ready to pray that prayer? Are you ready to cry out to God to give you that kind of grace 
to stand up for Jesus Christ because the sake of the gospel is worth it. Because the destiny of people that you know, their destiny is hanging in the balance and they need Jesus. Are you willing to cry out to God, God, grant me the grace to persevere so that I can proclaim even in the midst of suffering, of opposition when it comes. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, may we always remember that you are a God who answers prayer. Just as you did for these early believers, you answer prayer for us, these believers here today in our church. Help us to remember that you are a God who works powerfully, works mightily to grow your church, to spread your word, to help us to proclaim the gospel. You are a sovereign over everything. And nothing is outside of your control and nothing can stop your plans. And so, Lord, we ask, we beg that you would grant us the grace, the power to persevere in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, even in the midst of opposition. Will you go to the Lord right now? Will you pray to him? Will you give your life to him? Will you ask him for the grace to persevere, for the courage to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim Jesus the one who died for you, who rose again, who now sits at the right hand of the Father, the one who has authority to give repentance and forgiveness of sins and to give us abundant and eternal life. Do you know that, Jesus? You can cry out even now and ask him to save you.